We're going to be going to the Gospel of Mark. Here, another Gospel lesson this morning, in addition to the one that Kathy read for us. And it's also about some water and an experience on the sea. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It'll be right here on the screen behind me. Now, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind them, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was so nearly swamped, and Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to it, Quiet, be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. He, start, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. This is our fourth week in our series called Holy Ground, and it's been fun. For me, at least, I hope it's been fun for you as we look through the scriptures and we think about the different places where God meets us. God meets us on the mountaintops. God meets us in the shadow valleys. God meets us on the riverside. And today, God meets us on the sea. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You know, when we write sermons, Michael and I, we write all of our sermons together, and most of the work we do, the exegesis where we study the text and like the, the compiling of like the different parts of a sermon, we try to do weeks in advance or sometimes the, the beginning of the week, and you know, we want to get as much done early as we can, but we always leave us a little room for flexibility. Like, for example, our introductions to our sermons often are personal stories or anecdotes, some sort of story about something somewhere to try to bring us in to what the text is saying. And I was talking to Michael on the phone yesterday, and I said, the whole sermon is done, but I just, I don't really have a good intro. I don't have a good way to like get us into the meat and potatoes what we're talking about. And as I'm literally on the phone with him, we had just walked back into my house from walking to Carpe with our two best friends, my wife, my daughter, and my son, our two best friends. Um, we had walked to Carpe Diem for some coffee. We walked back and it started raining on us. It was like the cold rain, not the good rain, not like the summertime notebook movie rain, right? There's no good in a cold rain. And so we're walking through the cold rain, we get back inside, and my kids are pretty wet, so my son decides he doesn't want to wear his shirt anymore. And as he's taking off his shirt, my daughter snatches the toy from him that he was playing whenever he's distracted from derobing. She runs away from him, which causes him to freak out, and he uh, runs after her with teeth bared, like, she, like he's a Rottweiler chasing her down, about to draw blood and get that toy back. He proceeds to, to scream at the top of his lungs because she saw the teeth and hit him in the head with the toy. She hits him in the head with the toy, he cries, he's screaming, and then shortly thereafter, he sticks his hand in his huggy and pulls out a finger covered in trouser treasure. <laughs> Meanwhile, the rest of the adults are in the other room. I'm on the phone with Michael, and I'm yelling, hey, can somebody come in here and help? <laughs> And Michael is just on the other line, dying laughing. 
He said, I think you found your introduction. I laughed and I said, you're right, because this, this is chaos. And that's what we're talking about today, chaos. This is for me the real life example in the moment of what chaos looks like when you got a four and a two year old running around with trials of treasure on their fingers. Chaos is the experiences in life where everything is out of control. Chaos is when an incredible power meets complete disorder. It's the energy of a two and a four year old is incredible power, right? If we could harness that, we could replace every type of power we need to be able to run our systems. When we look in the Bible, the seas represent this power. The seas in the Bible represent chaos. At multiple times throughout the scripture, the Bible uses the seas to talk about the most destructive power in the world. When we read the Bible, there are three seas in particular that are featured in the texts. The largest is, so Jerusalem is the most important city in the Bible, and it sits about 30 miles from the largest body of water, the Mediterranean Sea. So 30 miles east of Jerusalem is the Mediterranean Sea. It's a really big sea. For reference, it's 1,400 miles east to west, 500 miles north to south. Really big body of water. 15 miles west of Jerusalem, though, is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is much smaller than the Mediterranean. It's 30 miles north to south, 10 miles east to west. Really long, 30 by 10, all right? Not a lot happens around the Dead Sea, though, but there are some references to it in the Bible. But the most important sea, most important body of water in the Bible is the Sea of Galilee. It's 70 miles north of Jerusalem, straight north of Jerusalem. The Sea of Galilee is even smaller than the Dead Sea, but it's really important because people live around it and they fish it, and it's a place where community and life happens. For some reference, it's 13 miles north to south and seven miles east to west. But it's, a really, it's like a big oblong circle almost, right? Like it's a defined body of water. So this particular sea is often referred to by other names in the Bible. It's called the Lake Tiberias, the Sea of Chinnereth, and Lake of Gennesaret. So anytime you read about a body of water in the Gospels, it's most likely talking about the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it refers to it as the lake or the lake of the area. For some contextual references, just to kind of put in your mind what this is similar to, the sea, the size of it. Uh, lake Martin is 13 miles north by south by 13 miles east by west, but it's all janky, right? Like it's got lots of sloughs, it's not a circle, it's like diff different lines. Uh, lake Eufaula, I'm from the Wiregrass, that's kind of our lake there, and it's, uh, it's real long. It's 30 miles north to south, but it's only two miles east to west. It's real long and skinny lake, right? Here in this region, Mobile Bay is kind of the most important body of water for us, other than the Gulf of Mexico. And Mobile Bay is very similar to the Sea of Galilee in its kind of total volume. It's 30 miles from the Delta to the Causeway down to the pass between Fort Morgan and Dolphin Island. And it's not quite as wide at, at the top as it is the bottom. It gets wider as it goes. So roughly the Sea of Galilee could fit mostly within Mobile Bay. Um, it's about the same distance, a little bit further than from Fowl River, East Fowl River to Point Clear. All right, so top to bottom, Mobile Bay. That's the type of area we're talking about, right? It's not the biggest body of water, but you don't want to be caught in the dinghy when the storm comes in, right? Sean Powers and I made a life pact that we would never go offshore in small boats anymore because we almost died doing that, going snapper fishing not too long ago. And that might be hyperbolic. You might think, no, I'm serious. I thought I was going over the boat 
Um, and now, like, I won't even get in the bay in anything small anymore, right? And so, like, when the disciples in this, uh, this story we just read, they're in a small boat, real small little craft, no motor, in the middle of a series, basically Mobile Bay. It makes sense when they say the storms came up. The waves were crashing over the sides. The winds were against them, and they were scared. They're in the middle of this body of water at nighttime. I don't like being on boats at night at all. In the middle of the body of water, no lights, no electricity. You got this, the moon, hopefully the moon's shining right. The winds are coming up, the waves are coming up, and they are scared. And so in this moment, they cannot believe that Jesus is just taking a nap. He's up on the cushion. I mean, when the waves come up, you know, I'm the first person to be leaning over the side. I tell you what, I, like, I love fishing and everything, but I get motion sickness, but Jesus is like napping, not a big deal. They go over to him, they say, Jesus, hey, wake up, wake up, wake up. Don't you care that we're all about to drown? I can imagine Jesus kind of like yawning, right? I don't know if you've imagined Jesus yawning before. He's a human, so he had to yawn at some point. Um, and so he's like, why are y'all so scared? And he just looks out and he says, hey, be quiet. I'm trying to sleep. Be still. And in that moment, the seas calm, the wind goes away. And the disciples are more terrified of Jesus in that moment than they were the storm. It says they were so scared, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? These kinds of stories about divine control over the sea are not uncommon in the Bible. There's a lot of examples where we show that God has power even over the wind and the waves. Like how was the Bible started, right? In the beginning, Genesis says about creation that the earth was a formless void. It was formless and empty. And then there was darkness that reigned over the surface of the deep. Water, chaos. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the chaos. The seas, the waters represent disorder, chaos, nothing good. And then God comes and says, let there be light and brings forth land and living things, and creates order from chaos, gives purpose to power. There's another story about a great flood, and God has control over these waters too, and God promised, I'm never gonna let that happen again because I can control these waters. Jonah was on a boat, and whenever he was running away, some storms came up, and he told the people on the boat, it's my fault, if you throw me over, it'll stop. And so the people did, they threw him over, and it stopped. And you think the author of Jonah was saying that that was a coincidence? No. He was saying God was in control. God was the orderer of the wind and the waves. And then there was the time the story Kathy read about, right? Once after feeding 5,000 people, they just fed 5,000 people with, with some loaves and some fishes. Fish. Plural of fish is fish, I think. I'm not a marine biologist. Sorry, y'all, if I messed that up. The disciples, after doing that, rode all night long. It says in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, after working all day, the wind and the wave, guess what? Comes up against them again. The waves are coming over the boat, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. Jesus put them on, and he's like, I'll catch up. Don't you worry about me. I got my own ride. And then all of a sudden, they're terrified. Middle of the night, worked all day, rowing, the wind, the waves. It's a really chaotic moment. Chaos. And what do they see? A ghost. 
They see this figure walking to them on the water, and they're scared, and they say, oh my goodness, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. He didn't say, no, it's me, Jesus. Or he didn't say, hey, paddle over here, I'm tired. He said, do not fear, it's I. And then he told Peter, hey, Peter, why don't you come out here and walk on the water too? And Peter does, to his credit. He's like, all right, cool, Jesus told me to do it, I'm gonna do it. Jumps out of the boat, he walks, and then all of a sudden he's walking on the water, and what happens? The winds come up, the waves happen again, chaos introduces itself, rears its ugly head, and he gets scared and begins to sink. But before he's in any threat of danger, Jesus reaches out his hand, picks him up, and puts him in the boat. Friends, in a world where there was a lot of familiarity with the sea, where the sea represented the scary, unordered power of chaos, the scriptures testify to the reality that there is no power ever created on heaven, in heaven or on earth that is greater than God. And when I think about the chaos of our own lives, I think how quickly we find ourselves forgetting that fact. I think how quickly we succumb to fear and overwhelm. And when I say chaos, I'm talking about something very specific. A few weeks ago, we talked about shadow valleys. The next week, we're gonna talk about the wilderness. I'm not talking about either, chaos is not those things. The shadow valley is a place of loneliness and isolation. The wilderness is a place of desperation. The shadow valleys, they, they have order but no life or power. The wilderness has neither life nor power. But the sea, the sea has abundant life. It's got a lot of power, but no order at all. It's when the powers of the world swirl in such a way that they seem like everything is out of control. That is chaos. Chaos is, is where there is palpable energy that feels like it's tearing our world apart, an unpredictable mess that we're just stuck in. The, the chaotic sea is like toddlers playing Play-Doh in a clean house. There's no doubt things are gonna get messed up and it's gonna take a whole lot of resolve to get it out. Chaos in our lives is when your kids leave for college and then you lose your job that was gonna pay their tuition. Chaos is when your parent passes away and your spouse has the flu and you're caught trying to figure out how to help everybody in the moment. Chaos is when the news blasts that the world is coming to an end because of all these terrible things and then you have to put your dog down and your kids start hanging out with the wrong crowd and your hot water falls through your ceiling all in the same weekend. That's chaos. And if I had to guess, I'd say we all know a little bit about like what chaos feels like. Like our world might have fallen apart or be falling apart or this is thing after thing, gotta go to place after place and these things keep being beyond our ability to control and that is chaos. That's the power of the sea. And when those times come in life, when we are wrapped around by this swirling mess of power, there are three things we are often tempted to do. There are three directions we feel pulled. The first is, whenever things get chaotic, we feel the tendency to turn around, right? Now imagine the disciples on that boat. 
They're rowing away from the place where they just fed 5,000 people. And those, they're heroes, right? They gave food to people and they were part of the miracle. Like if you ever like with the band, you feel cool because you're with the band. Like they're with Jesus. And like, so like they could just ride it out all night and be like the cool guys. Like, yep, yeah, I was part of that. It was a big deal. It'd have been really nice to stay and bask in that glory, but Jesus puts them in the boat and tells them to leave the safe place of honor and go to somewhere chaotic, go to somewhere unknown. And I bet they're on that boat and I bet they look back and it seems like there's a beach party happening back there, right? Everything was perfect where they left, right? You can see that they started a bonfire, the band is playing. I mean, all they wanna do is turn that boat around and go back to the safety of where they were. In the moments of chaos, we often look to our past and, and imagine that it was perfect, right? Everything was better back there. When we were slaves in Egypt, everything was better, like the Israelites said, right? We, when we, things are falling apart, we're like, if I could just go back to the way things were, it would all be fine. Like share, right? If we could turn back time, right? Going back the way of the things were is the easiest thing to do when there are moments where our worlds are falling apart. But sometimes we, we have a second temptation. Sometimes in the times where the world is falling apart, we, we, you know, there's one of my favorite songs is by a guy named John Hyatt. It's called Through Your Hands. And he says, there's a line in there that says, we scheme about the future and we dream about the past. One temptation is to dream about the past and one temptation is to scheme about the future, to imagine that the perfect situation is right around the corner. If I can just get through this season, everything on the other side is gonna be perfect. If I can get through this, this school semester, if I can get through this project at work, if I can get past this case as a lawyer, as a, as a student, if I can make it to Christmas break, then I can pause and reorient, and in the next season, everything's gonna be better. You just imagine that the perfect work-life balance is a YouTube video of productivity away, right? If you have in your mind, like, you know what, if I just pick myself up by my bootstraps once I get to a season of break, then the next season, I'll take care of everything that was making me worried. I will have eliminated all the things that were causing me stress. We scheme about the future and we dream about the past as if both are the perfect thing. All we gotta do is either wait or turn around. And the third temptation is, is probably the most dangerous of them all. The temptation when we are in a time of chaos, is to ignore it entirely. To, to pretend like it's not happening. To put our heads in the sand. When the power of the moment is too great, we are tempted to shut down and act like the world is not falling apart around us. To act like we are not drowning in the sea. Like when, a, when our community has a major event that shakes it to the bedrock, rather than, than deal and process this power that is racking our world, we pretend instead like it's not there at all. Right, this happens in our personal life, but it also happens in our communal life. It's easier when things are going badly in our community for us to put our heads in the sand and blame the, the crazy news outlets for overblowing everything or to blame the school system for not addressing the problems, or to blame the church for not fixing our children, or to blame everyone else except ourselves. We absolve ourselves because we're just ignoring that because that's not our problem. These powers are beyond our control. So we're just gonna pretend like they're not even there. But this morning, I cannot help but reflect on what the disciples did in the moments of chaos. When Peter was beginning to sink 
When the world was falling apart around them, the sea was bearing its true power and chaos reigns. In that moment, God met them where they were. That's what this whole series is about, that God meets us. God didn't wait till everything was better and then show up. God didn't say, once you fix yourself, then come to me. God didn't say, row your way out of this mess. God walked on water to get to the people. You want to talk about a miracle, something that had never been done before, something they'd never seen? That's what God does. When chaos reigns, God is a greater power. When it feels like the world is falling apart and nothing can save you because the waves are coming over the boat, God walks on the water. There is no power in your life that is greater than God. And the only thing that can bring true order to your world is Jesus Christ. When the world seemed like it was the most chaotic, all the disciples had to do in that moment was follow the advice that Eugene Peterson gives us and gave his readers. Continue their long, faithful obedience in the same direction. Don't turn around. Don't wish it away and dream like this can be perfect. Don't ignore it. Discipleship, following Jesus, is often long, faithful obedience in the same direction the direction that God calls us. In his book by that same title, Long Faithful Obedience, Peterson writes this. Our work goes wrong when we lose touch with the God who works his salvation in the midst of the earth. It goes wrong both when we work anxiously and when we don't work at all. When we become frantic and compulsive in our work and when we become indolent and lethargic in our work. There's no prescription we can generate for ordering chaos. There's no BuzzFeed article that makes everything around you calm down. You know why? Because listicles and blogs do not, did not order the cosmos. Because humans cannot do what God does. God orders the lives that are falling apart and God is not afraid to meet us in the mess. God is not afraid to say to you, I am here and I walked on water to find you. To experience God's work in times of disorder is to stay in touch and in love with God. And the good news is you are already doing it just by being here. What do you do for a long faithful obedience? You come to church and you worship with your sisters and your brothers. You sing songs that praise God's name and you meet with God in this place. What else do you do? You read your Bible at home. You talk about your faith with your friends and your family. You pray, you get on your knees, and you pray. What do we do in times of chaos? We meet the God who is meeting us. I pray that you will not jump ship. Out of all the things you've heard about the boats tonight, the disciples, they just stayed in it. They continued saying, we are going the direction God is calling us and trusting that the Lord will work. I cannot guarantee you how and when your chaos will end. I wish I could. But I can say that even in the midst of it, you are not alone. There's other people in the boat with you. Other, no matter what Instagram might be telling you, other people's worlds are falling apart too. And together we can say, let us meet the God who is meeting us.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.